Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to mention the three ways you can support the podcast. Firstly, you can leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. The more ratings and reviews the show gets, helps it reach a bigger audience and gain in popularity. If you would like to help the show monetarily, you can go to justgiving.com, search for A Mic on the Podium, and make a donation there. Alternatively, you can go to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium and subscribe monthly to hear two new series of episodes, a monthly bulletin, and much more. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash a mic on the podium. Today, I talk to a Venezuelan conductor who can count Daniel Barenboim as being one of his mentors. His career has been truly global, having conducted in many of the world's leading opera houses, and soon he starts a new job here in the UK when he becomes Chief Conductor of the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra in 2021. It is a real pleasure to welcome Domingo Hindoyan. Domingo, how lovely to talk to you today. Hi Michael, it's nice to meet you. I wonder if I could start right back at the beginning because your early life was spent in Venezuela, in Caracas. I wonder how music first came into your life. Well, I come from, from a musical family. Uh, my father, he's a violin player, mm-hmm. uh, retired already. And uh, my, his uncle also was a violin player. My grandfather was a musician, amateur, yeah. uh, but a music lover. So it, it comes a little bit from, 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 from my father's side. And uh, I just started very early. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I can even say I don't remember. I was probably five years old and I have a violin in my hand. <laughs> um, and being already just knowing to play two notes in the first position uh, with some marks in the violin, so I find the notes, I was already playing in an orchestra. Mm. I started very early, like with with with, with barely, you know, barely uh, some technique. So I was already uh, in the swimming pool swimming. You know, I didn't mm. no 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 time for. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, uh, did, at what point, or if at all, did uh, the famous Venezuelan system El Sistema um, come into your life? Were you part of that at all, or were you just because you came from a musical background, learning uh, separate of that? Exactly. Well, this is an interesting question. It was a little bit mixed. Mm. But when I first started, I was five years old, was in the Simon Bolivar Conservatory, which is part, was, was let's say, was the center of the education uh, and, and the learning process of a Sistema in Caracas. Mm. And I started there. And I was five years old, six years old. I had some pictures somewhere. Uh, and I was already in orchestra that that's, that that belonged to El Sistema. Then later on, I also made some studies in the in the in the in other music schools in Caracas that did not belong to El Sistema. But but let's say mainly I, I my path was through 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 El Sistema. I, for instance, the violin, the most important part of my violin in Venezuela was in the Latin American Academy, yes. violin academy, which which is part of the El Sistema. And of course, I was member of plenty of uh, various youth orchestras, and later on, before coming to Europe, in the Simon Bolivar uh, Symphony Orchestra, which it was not uh, a youth orchestra when I when when I started there. Mm. Yeah, it changed, didn't it, from a youth orchestra to symphony orchestra? Um... Well, uh, yes, there are two orchestras. I mean, there is Simon Bolivar, the one I joined when I was seventeen. I was the I was the youngest, yeah. uh, and there the youth orchestra of Venezuela became also Simon Bolivar, and we kind of for a while we had like Simon Bolivar A and B, <laughs> without uh, without any quality classification, uh, just A and B. I mean A were the older and B were the the the, the one Gustavo uh, conducted a little bit on tour and the famous concert France and. And this one was, this one, I did not belong to that one. I was to the other Simon Bolivar, the A. Mm. Although most of my friends are also in, in that one, the one we're touring around the world. And was that training, I mean, which in whichever of the two orchestras that they have, was that training orchestrally something that you think you rely on to this day as a conductor? 
um, because you know the, these orchestras seem to be incredibly well trained, incredibly well drilled, um, and all the way up to Dudamel conducting. You know, the, a good roster of conductors. Do you think that really helped you going forwards to becoming a conductor? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, the first is the, is the routine we had in the in the good sense of the word routine. I, I used to I used to finish the, the school at midday, one o'clock in the afternoon, and immediately only one hour for lunch, and immediately going to uh, the music center, whatever whatever was that day. Mm -hmm. And I used to have every afternoon a music from one or two o'clock till six or seven o'clock in the evening. And and this then you grow you grow up with your friends. And the, this famous connection the orchestra had, and have uh, the Venezuelan orchestra has, it comes already just for spending hours with the same people playing string quartet, playing chamber music, and the conductors, including Gustavo, including other conductors, they were just part of the orchestra them itself. Yes. So it was just a, 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 just a family. So that's what built this connection. And of course. Uh, how lucky I was to do so much repertoire when I was 20 and I came to to to, to continue to my studies in Europe. I I have I have played all Brahms symphonies, all Beethoven symphonies, all Mahler, uh, most of the Shostakovich. Uh, just to mention, of course, Tchaikovsky, all of them. Just to mention a few. Uh, and this is, I mean, it's a lot when you are 20 years. And in my case, uh, and I mean, in the case of all of us there. Uh, there was also a big uh, uh, individual development. Mm -hmm. I, I, the, the violin uh, was on my own. The, 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 the etude, uh, the technique, the concertos was. I really worked a lot on that. Yeah. And I actually used to play even solos before coming to Europe. A few concertos there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just the list of repertoire you've just read out or listed of, of music that you you had already played and encountered before you came to Europe is a staggering amount for somebody so young. Um, I mean, you know, that, they're the sort of things that you're well, you're well into a career as an orchestral musician before you can tick off playing all of the Mahlers, all of the Beethovens, all of the Brahmses. You know, I think I was probably a good 10 years into my playing career before I got anywhere near ticking those off. And, you know, I, <laughs> I played for 22 years and I still didn't play every, all of the Shostakovich symphonies. Um, yeah, I mean, what an amazing, amazing background. Um, when did you leave and where did you go in Europe to carry on studying? And when you were studying, were you studying violin and conducting or did you leave to just go and study conducting? No, actually, I just I, I left to, to study only violin at the yeah. beginning. Yeah. Uh, in Venezuela, we had often master classes from, from, from international teachers and, and maestros used to come from... from America, from from UK, from France, and and once I met uh, uh, this uh, violin teacher called Habib Kayale, very special and personality and and deep knowledge of the violin technique, and he he has an international academy in Switzerland, mm. uh, close to the Geneva Lake, and kind of this uh, you know idyllic place and and place that so. And I met him, he came, he went to Venezuela twice and I played for him and, and it was fantastic chemistry. And I decided to, of course, I found a scholarship. I couldn't afford myself to pay studies in Switzerland. Mm. And I found a scholarship and I left to study violin with him. Mm. Uh, where I just, you know, kind of um, uh, a place where I used to study eight hours a day violin and think about life and music and mm and philosophy and, 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 and dreams and, and ambitions and, and but what, everything was canalized in the energy through the violin. Yes. But I always had this um, um, curiosity about conducting, being the son of a violin player who was an assistant concertmaster in Venezuelan Symphony Orchestra, my father. I used to attend a concert every week since I was five, six. And then, of course, for a kid, Michael, you know, the mm. big mystery is what these conductors do, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and uh, I was, of course, uh, hypnotized by that. And uh, with time and being an orchestra player, I always look at the conductor in a different way. Well, why is he doing this? What is right? This one I don't like. And this, uh, what, 
why he's, you know, I start to really think, think as a conductor and go to the rehearsals with the score and uh, with this curiosity or dreaming about uh, about the conductor coming late and myself conducting a little bit, you know, so this thing starts <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, it happened once I was 15 and the conductor of the youth orchestra gave me the baton, I was the concertmaster. I said, come, come and conduct a little bit, I remember. A Bergin suite uh, and some of the Bartok uh, dances, and it was, was really a sensation, extraordinary. But but then I left it. But it was always on my system. I wanted really to to to, to learn conduct at some point. But I believe I need to go as far as possible with my talent with violin in order yes. after to to have something to give as a conductor. Yes. Yeah. So many conductors previously in the podcast have said that you know they either did what you did which is you know studied for as long as possible to get as good as possible on an instrument or feel that that is something that a conductor has to do before becoming a good conductor is, is be proficient in your instrument um and uh, you know i i think personally i think it's true um you know if you've spent those hours learning to be a great violinist uh, learning the ins and outs of string playing it really does help when you come to conduct so it sounds very similar to me in the fact that yeah 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 i'd often have those dreams i wonder what happened if the conductor fell ill and who would take over and all of that sort of thing exactly. uh, i mean exactly. it did actually happen to me um but by then i was already conducting but yeah i mean yeah it's funny that uh yeah i never had those dreams about violin soloists though did you i never i never thought yeah i could stand up there and play the shostakovich if they fell ill i never had those dreams. Oh, no, that, exactly that i didn't have <laughs> And so what point uh, in your studies um, in Switzerland did you start to think uh, more seriously about conducting? And did you have a, a teacher or um, did you join a class um, yes. at some point? Well, uh, while I was believing this uh, crazy dream of signing violin every day in a small house close to the Geneva Lake, I was always in my head uh, uh, with the with the conductor ambition mm. of becoming a conductor, so uh, by profit I was in Switzerland and I, I made some some research. I traveled a little bit. I went to London at first uh, to the just to attend and you know to the brochure and the Royal Academy and yes. the Royal College, and I went to some uh, some concerts and I met some people, and then I went to uh, to Paris. And, and I did little trips like this to, to see where can I will find myself uh, uh, good to study conducting and where can I afford it. Yes, of course. London yeah. was immediately excluded. London was excluded because it was, it's a different price, price for non-European uh, yeah. students. <laughs> and I could not afford it. But then I finished and then I, I to friends, I discovered there was a fantastic teacher in Geneva. Yes. And I went to and I went to audition in Geneva Conservatory, and not far away because my, my music school, my, my violin school academy was in Canton de Vaux, close to Lausanne. Then I went to Geneva, which is for Swiss distance, it's a long trip. And then I went to Geneva, and I, I auditioned, I applied, I auditioned, and everything from there went very well. It's uh, uh, his name is Laurent Gay. Mm -hmm. It's a French conductor. Who, who who really is a fantastic teacher uh, in all sense. He respects the the proposals of the student, but he knows how to guide to take the better of it. And from there, I study everything. I study also choir conducting with the other the, the chorus master there. Uh, piano, of course, to improve the piano skills and the the side reading and the piano and everything and the orchestration and composition, everything possible at the European style and European way of learning conduct. Yeah. And this was was very, very, very important for me. Very important for me because I also was lucky. I could always travel to Venezuela and conduct any youth orchestra while I was in holidays. Yes. Then, uh, because of course in Geneva, I would have small orchestra 
to 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 conduct. Uh, you know, I could not. But I would go to Venezuela, conduct Tchaikovsky Symphony, something I couldn't do in the conservatory. I couldn't. I couldn't do in the conservatory. Yeah. So I used to 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 share all that. And uh, with time, maybe I'm too fast. You can tell me if I'm telling you too much at the same no, time. No, no, no. Then, then some master classes. Then I met um, people like uh, that were very important at the beginning, like Bernard Heiting, for instance. I auditioned for this Lucerne master class he used to do, and I was accepted, and I was active, and I conducted in front of him. I was a master chemistry, and he, you know, he, you know, taught me many, many, many things. I attended. Uh, also, Jesus Lopez Cobos, or even uh, Colin Matter, that you, 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 you for sure you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but mm -hmm. this I was passive, only listening. I went to a town in Germany where it had some students, and I just, I just pay the, the passive, uh, uh, on you know, subscription, and then I just listen to the, the the whole week of lessons, and you know, all, all like this. I try to get rich as possible uh, knowledge. From, from from everywhere to build myself. Well, I think the you bring an interesting point here for listeners who aren't conductors or maybe even musicians who've never gone into conducting is that there are lots and lots of courses or weeks that happen during a year normally, obviously not at the moment, but uh, where you have a choice of being an active participant, which means you actually get to conduct and podium time and lessons with the maestro, whoever it might be, or you can be passive, which means you can go and attend all of the sessions, video sessions, conducting sessions, you won't actually conduct. Um, both are very good. I mean, obviously the passive costs less, but you learn, I would imagine, almost as much because you're seeing maybe six active participants being taught, you get to hear what's being said, you get to understand, you know, score sessions. And um, I think it's a very it's a very good way if funds are tight for you to still learn don't you agree absolutely absolutely and i a conductor is such a rich um uh, job that mm. you can learn from everything and from everyone the good things and the bad things for instance also with the violin i was still active yes. and i used to play in many orchestras one of those uh, some youth orchestras i went to to, to Japan, for instance, at the Pacific Music Festival, where at the first year, Heiting, Bernard Heiting was the conductor with Mahler 9. Mm. Uh, and then Fabio Luisi with the Mahler 6, and, uh, and then Gergiev with Shostakovich 11. Mm. So these things, of course, a young musician who wants to be a conductor, it marks your life because you know how they rehearse, or, or how they don't rehearse, or, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or, or how, or how they, 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 they build, uh, and then of course always I was always in my core and 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 living in my mind, you know, the, the conductor's life, even that was a violin player, mm. and from from all that I I, I learned I learned a lot. Well, I want to go back one step briefly because um, Laurent Gay is not a teacher's name that's come up before. Um, in the past, we've learned on the podcast that if you were a Hans Swarovski student in Vienna, you probably got to talk about technique, i.e. stick technique, for about an hour in the, you know, over a three-year period. But if you were a Moosen student, everything was about stick technique. What was Laurent Gay like in that regard? Was he more 50-50? Um, did he have a... An, definite school of conducting, you know, a technical way of conducting, or was he more of the Swarovski, you know, let's talk about the music and the architecture and the structure? Uh, was 50-50, to be honest, was 50-50, and this was very good. Yes. It was very good. He, he, uh, the first thing that was very strange for me, it was that I should conduct, I don't know how to translate it in English, uh, I, I should conduct in silence. Okay, and he would I, I I would put the score in front of me, and he will be reading his score, and he will conduct a symphony, mm -hmm. and with no piano, an orchestra in front of me, and nobody singing. Yes, and only with that he would know exactly how much you know the score. Yes, because of course uh, you don't have a sound support to to you know 
to, 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 if you don't know the score, you can follow a pianist, you can tell, no, then you really need to know, anticipate everything with the eyes, and you have to kind of make uh, this movie that you have somebody, somebody in front of you. Mm, yeah. but, but, but the gesture, he will read it perfectly, and he will say, you forgot the second clarinet, or you <laughs> forgot, to say, but, uh, but it's not important one. Yeah, but you have to think about it, and he will immediately read it in your, in yes. your gesture and in your mind. And yeah. this was fascinating. And of course, this was in preparation to conduct the, the real ensemble after. Mm. But this one was, was, was very important, of course, the technique, but he will not impose a specific, for instance, way of holding the baton right. or, or a way of, of uh, he will try to find the, the, in your body what, what you could do the best to, in, in order to, to express what you want. Mm. Well, that sounds like a very interesting school. And, and I think personally, I'd probably prefer that than the old fashioned way of two pianos. Um, which you know you're you're often dealing with the two pianists rather than thinking about the score orchestrally, and that's bad. That's wrong. You know, as Simon Rattle says, learning to conduct with two pianos is great if you're going to conduct two pianos. Um, yeah, he is completely right in that regard. So doing it that way, you've got to have a sound picture in your head of what you want the score to sound like, what you expect it to sound like. Um, Exactly, and because yeah. you develop the, the inner ear, yeah. you develop it in a way, uh, also as, uh, because we were, we were five students, then what is interesting also is when you are not conducting and you are following, mm. and this, 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 this room class, uh, uh, is the classroom is totally silent, and somebody is conducting, and sometimes you feel the, the breathing of your colleagues, next to you, everyone's breathing together, you know, it's, <laughs> and it's, quite, it's, it's actually quite magic. Yeah. Uh, and it's very interesting because it develops very much the 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 the, the ear yeah. and and the imagination. What the, yeah. so having absorbed all of that from Lauren Gay, you, you as you said, you mentioned Heitink, uh, um, Lopez Cobos. Um, I've also read you know experiences with Esther Becker Salen and Sir Andrew Davis, David Zinman. Did you did, were they sort of giving you extra things on top of of the technique you were already getting in Geneva. Um, it must have been quite daunting to stand in front of uh, conductors of that stature in master classes. Yeah, I mean, some of them is, is about, uh, it was more about the, the huge and amazing charisma and aura they will have. Yeah. And they will show you something and then you will say, how did he did it, you know? And, um, of course, all of them, uh, especially Mr. Heitink or or Lopez Cobos and and all of them actually, also 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 David Simon, it's about conducting less to achieve more. Yes. And 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 the, the three of them, uh, they are great examples of that. Um, in my case, Lopez Cobos very interesting because he was very tall. Mm. Conductor, I, I'm a tall, I'm a tall guy, and and uh, and I could see on him how he will just move a little bit, and that you have to be careful with that because you are tall. If you move a little bit, your little bit, it's much more from a little bit of another conductor who is probably a few centimeters less than you. But you have to be careful with your arms and move less, less, less. And this, this, this is a common thing, but especially the eyes. Mm. And how they how they they they, they, they deal, but I always find it a little bit cruel these master classes when all these <laughs> young conductors, all young conductors were working so hard, and then the maestro comes and he barely moves, and the orchestra plays like God, and they play so beautifully, and it's always, <laughs> but, <laughs> it's always but, interesting. It, but they're bound to, aren't they? Because all of a sudden it's gone from a student to Bernard Heitink. The orchestra's going to raise its game anyway, so they're on a win-win situation. Um, Absolutely. Very, very rarely do you see these great maestros demonstrating and it all falls apart. Um, that just doesn't happen. Uh, another big name, uh, I, I'm interested to know how much contact you had with him, but your first job was assistant at the Deutsche Staatsoper Berlin uh, for three years with Daniel Barenboim. Did were you first of all were you assistant to the to the um, the Staatsoper or were you assistant to um, Daniel Barenboim? Well, this is uh, this is another subject. Actually, 
this is maybe where the, the period of my life where I learned the most. Yes. Yeah. Uh, everything started as, uh, of course, a game, like a violin player. Um, in, in 2005, Mr. Byron was uh, conducting Chicago Symphony at the Lucerne Festival. It was, uh, I remember perfectly, Ravel repertoire was uh, Rhapsody Espanol, uh, uh, Bolero, uh, and uh, La Borada, and a kind of uh, a Ravel second half. Yeah. And uh, I live in Switzerland, so I just decided to go to the rehearsal because I was a little bit afraid I could not come in with security. I took my violin with me. Mm. You know, I just I I will make kind of a face. I'm a Chicago Symphony player. I go just going, <laughs> and and I got in and I got in and I was in the audience, and I recognized a friend of mine playing horn in a Chicago Symphony. Yes. One of the of the horn players of a youth orchestra was before in Japan, and he said, "Come with me at the end of the rehearsal. I will introduce you to my instrument." And I was really not a little bit afraid. Wow. And but at the at the end I did I did I was with my violin. And he said, but where are you from? And I'm Venezuelan, but your family name, where does it come from? And I said, well, this uh, family name is an Armenian, uh, Syria. My mother was born in Syria, huh. in Aleppo, yeah. uh, from an Armenian father, from an Armenian father. And uh, she, and, and, and she, after I immigrated to Venezuela, I said, wow, so you have some Syrian background. Said, well, yes, of course, you're an Armenian, for sure. You, you know what my project, he said, uh, the, the, the Israeli, uh, Palestinian, Arab project I have, of course, yes. by chance. I said, of course, Maestro, I know that project. Would you like to play in that orchestra? I said, well, with pleasure, of course. But I see you have a violin, but you, you really play good violin. Maestro, I, can, this, I cannot tell if I play good or not. You, I have to audition. I will, not, I will not tell you I play good. I have to audition. Yeah. When you want, I organize, I come to Berlin. No, 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 no Berlin. Just play now or something. <laughs> wow. And I was lucky. I was lucky. I was in shape, you know. And then yeah. I took my violin. I played the Tibichakovsky concerto on the Cadenza. And he was a little bit conducting, you know, holding the, holding the, the, the orchestra in his mind. And, and after that, next day, he called me to the orchestra. And then everything started there. Since 2006, I joined the West Eastern Divan Orchestra until 2000, 2012. Yeah, wow. And, and my conducting developed uh, in the, uh, parallel in the conservatory in Geneva and with Master Platon. And then he, at some point I told him, you know, Master, I'm also a conductor. Oh, well, he said, another one, you know, another one. <laughs> so many, you know, with his humor, fantastic. And there's another one, but slowly once, just to tell you the story, he did a master class with few conductors that played in the orchestra. Mm. We were three at the moment. Semina Ciclis, he lives in Chicago. He's a conductor in one of the Chicago orchestras. Daniel Cohen uh, and myself. Mm. And uh, the three of us, we conduct a symphony. I conduct the Eroica. And, uh, no, sorry, I conduct the seventh Beethoven. Beethoven mm. seventh, and he liked it very much. Until then, it's there where he knew I was a conductor and I was really serious about it and then he used to give me the orchestra all the time for sound check and so on and later on he proposed me the job at the Deutsche Staatsoper Unter den Linden but he told me you have to come and audition in front of the orchestra and everything there started there I came to Berlin and auditioned and I had I was here for three years yeah 2013 wow. to 2016 yeah yeah wow wow what a story um yeah just uh, if you if you hadn't have had the guts to to blag your way into that rehearsal and pretend that you were a violinist, uh, you know one wonders what would have happened. What a wonderful story! Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. These small details. And did he did he see you conduct very often? Because that's the problem with being an assistant is that a lot of the time you're helping uh, the boss out, uh, you know, Maestro Barenboim out by sitting in the audience or helping him with balance or whatever it might be. But how often did he see you conduct and uh, other than, you know, when you did the Beethoven seventh and, and what input did he have uh, into your style or into the, the way that you conduct? Everything, Michael, you know, it's uh, from the beginning, he told me, you are not going to be an assistant in the, in the, you know, in the, yeah, professional yeah. term, in the professional meaning of it. Yeah. You, of course, you have the job of assistant, but 
uh, you will be kind of my conductor, conducting academy. Yes. So you will be, so I, I have a job on assistant with a contract saying that I should assist him in some opera during the season, but actually was in every single rehearsal wow. from every repertoire. And he used to give me the orchestra. Already uh, two weeks after I started, he gave me orchestra with Beethoven Force piano concerto to accompany Radulupu and then of course immediately after we will eat together and he will give me the input. Yes. Uh, it was very bad, it was very good, and or, or do like this, or you have to start a little bit more, or you were not prepared for this, uh, or this was fantastic. Or he will always but always very demanding. Mm. Always absolutely very demanding. And he's not the kind of conductor that will cancel. He doesn't cancel and then the assistant will jump in this happens very 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 rare yeah. and uh, but but i was there he told me domingo don't accept this job if you don't like opera mm. you know it's enough already with symphonic you have so many great things and rich come only here if you really like the theater yeah. drama uh, uh, staging and and the voices and then you will really have fun. Otherwise, playing the symphonic only, you come whenever you want to watch rehearsals and we can talk about music. No, no, of course I like it. So <laughs> then I was there every day uh, for, for, to meet great stage directors and great singers and, 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 and growing. And of course, with him, he was extremely, and still today, extremely generous with me, with, with sharing his knowledge of, of course, you have always to provoke him and ask questions and, yes. and, and, and be, you know, he likes this challenge of somebody who knows and, and or with curious, especially curiosity. Mm. And then you, you can have a fantastic relationship that I have seen since many years already. Wow, brilliant. Um, that, that's amazing. And um, my next question is actually going into opera and the fact that I've noticed that you've guest conducted at uh, the Met and at Stuttgart and Monte Carlo. Um, when you guest conducted, did you were, were they? Um, I know that some opera houses, you know, you can go in and conduct a one-off, one performance of La Boheme because it's in their repertoire. Or were you involved from the beginning with directors and, and putting a new production together? Um, ha, how long did you spend in those opera houses? Well, it depends on the of the house yes. and the style uh, and the style. I did a little bit of everything. I, I I have conducted new productions in Austria, for instance, and the Graz Opera, where I really spent time with the with the stage director doing the premiere of Hansel and Gretel, for instance, mm. or Turandot, and then uh, really you know to develop this relationship, stage director, conductor, and singers and the orchestra, which is fantastic. I also did performances just without any rehearsal yeah yeah without anything where i stood up in front of the dresden at the dresden uh and i did Traviata and i just say hello good evening to the orchestra first time in my life in fact and and uh, and the metropolitan the metropolitan is it's in between yeah uh, even if it's repertoire uh, there is always rehearsal because right. it's not a repertoire like the German, the German uh, style, German Austrian style. It's, 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 I had at the Metropolitan, I have three proper weeks of rehearsal with the, with the, with the singers and with the orchestra, one reading and uh, or two readings and then uh, Italiana with the singers and then uh, stage and then general uh, dress rehearsal. So I have like four rehearsals and, yeah. and it's for, of course, for orchestra like that one. Amazing, and Elisir d'Amore is more than enough. <laughs> um, but uh, Vienna Stadtopera, I when I conduct Turandot, uh, only one rehearsal. Yeah, well, uh, for Turandot. So I mean, you know. a real a real mixture. <laughs> and the, the, the ones that interest me and frighten me would be the going in and just doing it straight away um, with no rehearsal. Um, that must be, especially because, you know, if you've never conducted an auction before and you go in there and the first thing you do is a concert, you don't know what, how they're going to respond to your first downbeat or your upbeat. Um, that must be quite an adrenaline rush. Absolutely. I, I, I've done it with, for instance, with Traviata and Bohème, I did it. Mm. And with Tosca also I did it. But... Uh, I feel in, in say, for instance, Tosca was here at the, at the, at the Stadtsoper Berlin, but I was the assistant. 
Yes. And I prepared the singers, I prepared the piano with the piano. I never conducted the orchestra. Yeah. Byron Boehm told me, I'll give you one rehearsal. <laughs> but in that, in that rehearsal, the tenor got sick. Ah. And everyone knew the opera, and I didn't want to rehearse just for me, you know? Mm. <laughs> this is the typical moment where everybody knows every, everything, and they will say, well, why we rehearse? Yes. And then everyone will, will feel it's only for the conductor. So I used to say to Byron, Maestro, let's cancel the rehearsal. That's a matter. I'll go direct. Yeah. Then I left. My, my wife gave birth of her son. And then I came back and I went directly to the Tosca. And of course, I was so adrenaline. But I knew it inside him, you know, uh, everything. Because yes. I built it with him in this. Different was Aida. Mm. that I conducted without any rehearsal at the Royal uh, Swedish Opera in Stockholm. And there was my first Aida in my life. <laughs> wow. And this, this was a little crazy. Mm. But uh, I prepared very well and I went to, to some rehearsals. I remember it was Julia Jones conducting and I went to her rehearsals. And then uh, one day of rehearsals and then I left and I came back. But this sensation, I have to admit, Aida, it's kind of straightforward opera. It's like yes. a big, you know, it's less difficult than Rigoletto or Traviata or or this. And then I, I felt after five, ten minutes, I said, okay, it's under my control. I can, and then I immediately could feel free and do music with orchestra, which I have a nice relationship with them. And they're so free and, and, and flexible. So this kind of experience, this is, but this, Michael, it shows how important is uh, the technique. Mm. Because they're expecting from you to, to really show them everything without, without meeting you before in, in rehearsal. So this is <laughs> yeah, you can't say anything. You've got to say it all with your body, with your beat, with your eyes, with your face. Um, yeah, absolutely. You've got to be technically, um, technically correct and on the game. Um, in the game, should I say. On the game means something completely different. <laughs> Two thousand and nineteen is a big year for you. Uh, you become principal guest of the Polish National Radio Symphony Orchestra, but it's also the first time you meet the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra. And um, not so long ago, it was announced that you were going to start as their chief conductor in 2021-22. What was that like meeting that orchestra? I've met them. I've conducted them almost a hundred times in various different um, concerts. Um, and education and schools and family and Christmas and whatever else. What was it like meeting the RLPA for the first time? Well, you, you know them. So it's, I have conducted uh, many, many of the British orchestras, especially in London, uh, with little rehearsal time. Mm. And then when, uh, when I went to Liverpool, I had some rehearsal time. And <laughs> I say, I thought before, well, you know, English, they're, hard, they're very fast. I will end up canceling uh, rehearsals probably. Mm. But I started to work with Beethoven 7, and I felt uh, this ambition of rehearsing more, of playing uh, better and every detail, mm. and, you know, this, this will to, to, to really go deep in the music and not just, you know, let's finish the rehearsal and tomorrow anyways but on seventh we know it mm. no was actually completing new piece you know like it's a new piece and and what's fantastic we felt the first feeling i remember i called my wife after I said, oh what a nice orchestra <laughs> and uh, and uh, and i went to this the hotel not so far i was not in front at the time i was a little bit further but uh it's uh it uh, was fantastic feeling Mm. They're, they're a great orchestra. Vasily Petrenko has appeared on the podcast, and he said it's the it's their curiosity and and their their striving for higher and higher levels of performance that that he loves and loved when he first met them. And and it sounds like you had a very similar um, very similar experience. Uh, and yeah, they are a, a great orchestra that do want to give their best and are curious. Um, and so you're looking forward to starting with them in 2021. And are you already talking about um, programs and plans and tours or, or has COVID sort of stopped that for now? 
No, not at all, not at all. We, 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 the COVID didn't stop that planning. We are planning a lot. Mm. And uh, I'm trying to organize my ideas because I have too many at the same time <laughs> and I only have 12 weeks. I have only <laughs> but uh, but putting putting things together and uh, and um, trying to 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 give a, a line and a coherence coherence in the repertoire and you know it's passionate it's something it's, it's something fantastic about the job and the right always and the touring and and all, all these kind of things is 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 uh, give, give me so much pleasure to plan but about Liverpool there is much more that only the orchestra yeah. it's all the surrounding because it's it's, it's it's some in some in some you know kind of, i feel like home because there is the the youth philharmonic there is the in harmony project there is the ensemble 1010 uh probably i will forget to forget uh, somebody but it's, it's amazing i can do so many things yeah. and i can be part of so many a great activity at the same time and the educational part of it so important uh, and in, in Liverpool and I think I grew up like that, that way mm. I grew up that way uh, so I felt very much you know even if it's in Liverpool so far from my country you know I felt somehow identified and and and, and close to to what, what, what they have there yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah this this, I, I'm, I'm very much looking forward. I hope all this uh, strange period where we're going through uh, could end and finish soon, and uh, and we can, you know, Vasily could end his uh, his last season uh, properly and do the repertoire he really wanted to do the last season at least from January on, mm. and and let let hope we can also start into one twenty two in, in great shape. Brilliant. Um, I've got one more question before we do the 10 questions, uh, and it's a question I've asked every conductor pretty much. When you come to learn a new score, do you have a system? Do you sit at the piano or do you use a violin? Um, do you start at the beginning and work your way through? And when doing that, are you somebody who writes in their scores or do you try to keep your scores clean and tidy? Ah, no, well, yes, I, I started first a little bit empty, just mm -hmm. reading my score with my, 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 my inner ear. I go to the piano, I'm not a great pianist, but I go to the piano for the harmony and for the, for the some, some harmony questions I would have and, and some transitions. I use my violin for some specific bowings I want to use. Mm -hmm. I, I look for some uh, reference recordings that might, might exist mm. to, 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 you know, great ideas or great, you know, that will write questions uh, on myself. Yes. And two things about the writing of the score. I have two scores. Right. Always, almost always for, 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 especially for the big pieces, I, you know, I, I, I will conduct all my life. There is one score that I write, everything goes through my mind. Mm. And all the problems, all the doubts, and all the solutions, and I erase them, and I start again, and, and analysis, and the harmony, and the structures, and all this. And, there are, and then, then have another one uh, where I, I, I conduct with it, because so I already know the piece. If I conduct with the score, then I put a clean score in front of me. Yes. But with time, with time, I have to admit, I write less and less. Mm. Because kind of my eye gets, gets a little bit faster in identifying things. And sometimes I think writing something there is just redundant, you know, will just bother why it should put the forte in blue or in red if it's already forte. Mm. I can see this forte. You know, it's only maybe a forty, which is maybe surprising, or I forget, or if I'm expected, maybe that one I would put something. But uh, I'm just starting to write less and less and less. But uh, we'll see. Maybe now after the virus, I will have to write again a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's true. Also, you're going to have a lot more repertoire to learn, so maybe two scores. Um, it, you know, it might be quite tricky to keep that going. Um, but and also shelf space <laughs> if you have two scores for every piece that's a that's a yeah. lot of space for shelves <laughs> well 
well, that, that, that's the question. Uh, sometimes I just have my own score mm. where I, I, I write everything. And if I'm conducting opera at some point uh, somewhere else, uh, sometimes I just travel without score and I ask the librarian of the orchestra. Uh, of course, should be the same edition at least. Yes. But, uh, you have, you know, the same edition. Yes, that, then I just pick up the score of, of the orchestra and I travel without anything. Domingo, it's 10 questions time, and as ever, I'll start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Well, the sound I love is one I miss very much. It's the little singing of the cricket in Caracas, mm. in the Caracas night. It's so beautiful and uh, it's, 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 it's really special because it's not so strong like could be in Provence, uh, in <laughs> France or in Italy. It's a little bit softer and higher and it makes me, it's a little bit nostalgic. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and the one I hate the most, there are many, but uh, let's say this repetitive sound in, uh, in a calm place. Mm. Uh, where there is a mistake, something wrong happening with a, with a wall or with the heating. You know, these old heating uh, in, in Europe, uh, heating system that have sometimes water, water drops coming that you, you can't stop them. You have to call the, the technician. <laughs> yes. Look, look, and you're sleeping, it's five o'clock in the morning and you, and you wake up because of that or something in the wall in between the, the tubes. Uh, yeah, this, this I, I, I even hate it more than the strong and loud drilling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When a when a central heating system is drip drip dripping through the night, that can be annoying, like a tap in a sink. Yeah, it can be very very annoying. Next one. Yeah, absolutely. If you had twenty four hours free, what would you spend it doing? Well, I, I would I would profit as much as possible with my kids, mm. and probably would be. Uh, that I discovered recently uh, to be in a boat mm. in, in the Mediterranean or in the Caribbean Sea or in any, in any calm sea with the beautiful blue uh, waters uh, so that I is this feeling of freedom and, and the sun and with, with nice food and good drinks and swimming. This, this, I, I, I will spend it that way. Uh, well, if you don't mind, I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you mind if I join you? That sounds lovely. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say with my kids, with my family, and friends. All yeah. the friends is the one very absolutely. <laughs> well, well uh, the, the reason, another reason for asking, can I join you? Because um, for those who are listening to the podcast, uh, you know, we recorded this in August 2020, and today is one of the hottest days of the year. And yeah, the thought of jumping into the sea right now is. Pure bliss. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Also for me now. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Yeah, this is a fantastic question and very difficult to answer because it depends on, on in my case, depends on the repertoire and because, you know, it depends how old. Some of them I didn't meet them. Mm. Uh, I could not attend concerts. Uh, so I could not uh, the, the personalities. I don't. I really don't know as a person. But musically speaking, for instance, depends when it's about Italian opera. I w I love uh, Victor de Sabata, Tullio Serafini, Davatenia. I, I love I, I love these recordings. Yeah. When it's about uh, Mahler, uh, I just recently couldn't stop to Bruno Walter's uh, Mahler's Five, yeah. uh, and and or. Or somebody is just years I met and I work with and and I love uh, in 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 the, like in a big in a big in, in all the aspects was Claudio Abado. I was mm. lucky to work with him for one month in Venezuela when he used to visit visit us there in 2010, and I was his assistant and I really enjoyed very much working with him and his recording and the way and the passion for music how much he studied and he respects the score and the music was really fantastic. And who would be a favorite current conductor? 
I admire many of my colleagues, and depending on the piece, yes. Uh, Schumann Symphony, all of a sudden I found a recording, and uh, very interesting, and then I go and I, I uh, you know, or, or Mahler or whatever, it depends of, 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 of the piece, exactly. Mm. But, uh, but I think for obvious reasons, what we spoke before, uh, the current conductor that influenced my life very much would be Daniel Paramount, without no doubt, mm. without no doubt, absolutely. But the, in, in the younger in the younger generation, I have so many I, I, I like so much. Uh, I can mention. Let me mention a few just for for you know mm. to, uh, for instance, a great friend of mine, Gustavo Dudamel. Yannick mm. uh, I, I, I love what he does. Um, uh, who else? Uh, Pavo is, uh, is fantastic. Just to give you one favorite, I can't. I can't. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Yeah, I was conducting it exactly when the virus started and we stopped one day before the dress rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, the Schoenberg Variations Opus 31. Uh. And uh, I think it's a very, very difficult piece because it depends. There is the technical pieces where, uh, you know, there is all these uh, bar changes and numbers. And, and this would study, this works always, this is no problem. But the Schomburg Variations, I found it hard because it's hard to make it understand to the orchestra. Mm -hmm. Already for the conductor itself, despite the addition helps you to find the Hauptstimme and the Neberstimme and all this, it's anyway difficult to balance. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it has such a much, has such a much, such of lyricism behind also that uh, it's not just you know surrealism and, and you know there is uh, this romantic context behind content behind that is very important to 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 take but you cannot bring it out if the orchestra doesn't like the piece <laughs> so That's it, true. so so it's very difficult how you rehearse the piece so that the orchestra understand it feel in love with it and um, and and at the end comes something that I remember uh, the first day of rehearsal, the first violist told me, Maestro, I hate it. <laughs> and I told him, wait. Yeah. Yeah. Until Thursday, and on Thursday I will ask you again. <laughs> and on Thursday morning I asked him, Do you really think the same? No. It's actually a fantastic piece. And then I was happy, and then I said, okay, doesn't matter, we don't have the concert tomorrow, I achieve something now. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you've, cha you've changed somebody's life. <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. This is a very difficult piece. Of course, after I can mention a few that are difficult uh, technically and, 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 you know, on, on balance or emotion emotionally, for instance, Mahler 6 was mm. uh, for me. Uh, the, the the last moment and and all this uh, content uh, is, yeah it's very 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 emotional. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Yeah, that's it's, it's a funny question in my case. Of course, let let's put apart all the technological items. Of course. Mm. Uh, the the I don't mention the phone. Uh, of course, the iPad is, has become a, a very nice tool for, yes. for for musicians. But you know, since I very first left Venezuela when I was 19 years old, I keep traveling with this blue case, mm. where inside I have some uh, 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 cards, presentation cards, pictures, uh, some papers some uh, a little souvenirs or, or some uh, gifts or some, uh, uh, my mother, you know, she offered me some religious cards or something. And I have this, I have never left home for a travel without that little blue case where I have this. And I don't know why, but sometimes it's unconscious, but it is always on my back, mm. always on my, on my suitcase traveling with me since I first left Venezuela when I was 19 years old. And actually the blue case belongs to a travel agency, Caracas, that doesn't exist anymore since 15 years. So it's, <laughs> and I never changed it. 
Right. And it's, 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 so yeah, it's nice, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant answer. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Well, uh, the only thing about this fantastic job I find difficult, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who answered this to you, is the traveling. Mm. Uh, and being away from the, your loved ones so often. Yes. And this is the, is the, is the difficult thing. Mm. That uh, if would be a way to, to, to change it, I would, I, would, I would do it. Other thing I would change is high podiums. Sometimes the podiums are too high and I'm already too high. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how tall you are, but I, you know, I'm in old money. I'm about six feet tall. And I uh, once worked with rather a famous British violinist. Uh, I shall keep her, save her blushes. Uh, first time we met was, was with an orchestra, a youth orchestra. And I stood on the podium and she came out to play in the dress rehearsal. And she said, right, either you get me a, a higher podium than you or you get down off that box. Because there was about nine feet difference between where she was stood and where <laughs> I was where I was stood. Um, sometimes it can be a bit, can be quite frightening, can it stood on a high podium, especially if they're small and you've got nowhere to sort of, you've got nowhere to relax into. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I don't like high podiums, so it's uh, it's enough. But but Michael, is the traveling is the most painful? Is it difficult? Is it? What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? That is also easy for me to answer because I actually studied two years. I was a student at the medicine school in Venezuela. Oh. Uh, I finished very early my, 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 you know, my secondary school very early. I was 16 years old. That's quite early for the, in Venezuela. You finish when you're 17 or 18, going mm. to 18. I finished 16, going to 17. A little bit immature and I want to do everything in life. And uh, apart from violin and, and, uh, and music, I went to medicine. And uh, I remember the medicine school in Venezuela, there are two in Caracas. One of them is in front of the Aula Magna. Aula Magna is one of the most beautiful concert halls we have in Caracas mm. that belongs to the university. And I used to escape from, from the lessons with my violin to study violin and practice scales and back sonatas and partitas in the corridors of the of the of the aula magna <laughs> and but in that with that rhythm i even almost made it to finish two years of medicine school yeah so i guess if i would not be a musician today i would be a doctor somewhere if the world were to end tonight what would be your choice of final meal and drink ah so that's very easy also i tell you why <laughs> <laughs> Spaghetti alle vongole. Ooh, this is my okay. favorite dish ever. Mm. With uh, a beautiful white wine from Puglia, probably, mm. um, or, or Tuscany. And then before that, I will start with uh, uh, a beautiful mozzarella of uh, the area of Campania, you know, of Napoli, around Napoli. Mm. Mm. A fresh uh, buffalo. And I will go on with the bongole, and I will finish with um, a fantastic tiramisu, probably, uh, with uh, a limoncello and Italian coffee. And I tell you, it's easy to answer because in the last three weeks, I think I was eating that so often. It's absolutely my favorite dish ever, spaghetti alle vongole. <laughs> well, I can tell you now that you've just listed two of my youngest daughter, um, May, um, two of her favourite dishes ever, the spaghetti alla vongole and also the tiramisu. So put it this way, I think um, you've done a wonderful choice and wonderful it's been to talk to you for the last hour or so. Um, had a really good time and I hope to see you very soon, hopefully when you're in Liverpool and started and I'll come up and see a concert. Great, Michael. You are not so far, so I'm also very much looking forward to meeting you very soon. And Michael on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I talk to an English conductor who, like Martin Brabins, won the Leeds International Conducting Competition, 
studied with Ilya Musin, and went on to become music director of English National Opera, as well as a very successful career conducting all over the world. Since 2013, she has been head of conducting at the Royal Academy of Music. Until then, bye-bye.